the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Ron Geyer, everybody. Welcome, End Time Insights. Today, we're starting a new church. It's not a new church. It's the third church in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And we are talking about the church at Pergamos today, or the proper current way to say that would be Pergamum. It's the third church. But before we do that, you get these shows probably a week after I do them, and Israel is in the news again. And I have to repent personally. I have not been paying attention. We used to pray for the peace of Jerusalem all the time. We used to pray for Israel all the time. A, we want our nation to be blessed, but also B, we just, as Christians, we have a heart for our brothers and sisters. Don't forget, they were also called the children of God, just as we are. And all of us, all of humanity, we are children of God by birth, by creation, but only a select few of us by our own choice are actually called children of God by relationship, sons and daughters of the Most High God. But I do want to pray for Israel today. They're under assault, rockets coming in from everywhere. And a big problem is that the United States is actually funding Hamas, and we are supporting those that are bent on the destruction of Israel. We would never have done that under the Trump administration, but we've uh, elected people that are anti-Israel. They're anti-God, anti-church, anti-America, anti-law and order, and they're anti-you. And these are the people that we put in charge. I put a Facebook post on earlier this week that, you know, don't bother praying for Israel if you voted for the Democrats. If you voted for the Antichrist crowd, if you voted to put Mr. Biden in there, then don't think your prayers are going to be answered. And Isaiah has a great scripture. It says, you talk to me, Isaiah you know, one fifteen. I should have brought it in. It just talks about the fact that God says, don't bother praying. I'm not going to hear your prayers because your hands are full of blood. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians who have voted to help elect those that fund abortion, help those that have open borders, that are killing our children at the border by letting gangs in, voting for those that are anti-law and order, wanted to fund our police, that want to go ahead and create riots in the streets and violence. There's blood on their hands. You may call yourself a Christian, but not all that glitters is gold. If the sign on the tree says apple tree and there's pears on the bottom, then guess what? It is not an apple tree. But I want to pray for Israel. Father God, we bless you and we love you so much. And we thank you, Father God, that you have a heart for your nation, your people, Israel. And we pray that the nations would know that there's a God still in Israel who's alive. Father, I pray for swift judgment, swift retribution, Father God. I pray, Father God, that you would remove those that are against Israel, those that are causing damage, those that are causing deaths in the land through the launching of rockets, those in America that fund them, Father God, that fund terrorist groups like Hamas and Black Lives Matter. Father God, I pray that you destroy them. You destroy them swiftly and quickly, Father. 
of God. And if that means that America has to suffer damage, then so be it. We need a cleansing in our land, Father. So I pray for your mercy. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that the heart of the Jew would be turned back to you, that there would be peace in her palace, there would be praise in her walls, Father God, that all Israel would be saved as prophesied in Zechariah, Lord. We love you. We trust you. Just be merciful to those in the land of Israel. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to our cry. We'll get it. Okay, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read you all one, two, three, four, five, six verses. Jesus talking to the third church in the book of Revelation, the church at Pergamos. They started in the coast city of Ephesus, and then the missionary move led by Paul moved further north to Smyrna, and now it's over in Pergamos. Verse 12, and to the angel or slash pastor of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he, which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where you dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. Verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that had an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Father, I pray you bless the reading of your word. Now open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law, Father, in Jesus' name. Pergamum, the church that was ablaze. And I know that you would consider this in the heading on your book, on your Bible, in your Bible. Lots of times, Pergamus would be called the church of compromise. And that's the negative aspect of it. But at the end of the day, they were also the church that was ablaze. These people were on fire. They were fighting for the things of God. Truth be told, God placed them, Jesus placed them in the middle of Pergamos, right where he wanted them. He wanted them to do battle with the devil. Hallelujah. And they did. There is a difference in the name of this city in different translations. Some call it Pergamos. Some call it Pergamon. The New King James uh, version calls it Pergamus, while the English Revised Version, the Revised Standard Version, and Moffat all call it Pergamon. It's the feminine form of the name, and Pergamum, the neuter name. Pergamus, the feminine form, Pergamum, the neuter form. In the ancient world, it was known as both Pergamum and Pergamus, but the newer common translation is Pergamum. It was considered to be the greatest city in all of Asia. All of Asia. It's a big continent. Pergamum was considered to be the greatest city in all of Asia. It was the representative seat of the Roman government in Asia. Uh, it was where the proconsul, political dignitaries came. It was home to the governor. And it was actually a capital city. It had been a capital city for over 400 years under different regimes. It was a city created to emulate the great Athens. And in many ways, it exceeded the glory of Athens in culture and art and architecture, in sculpting, in education. As well, unfortunately, it was considered the epicenter of idol worship in that first century during that time. 
Its geographical position made Pergamum even more impressive. It was built on top of a conical type of hill, which dominated the valley over which it oversaw, from the top of which the Mediterranean could be seen. Fifteen miles away, Sir William Ramsay describes it, as he writes, Beyond all the other cities in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city, the home of authority. The rocky hill on which it stands is so huge and dominant, it dominates the broad plain below it that was so proudly and boldly nestled beneath the great city of Pergamum. Because Pergamum was not a trade route city like perhaps Ephesus or Smyrna, it never achieved the commercial success that they did. But as far as culture was concerned, Pergamum surpassed them both. The city was also a leading religious center for that region. Temples to pagan gods were everywhere, and daily sacrifices marked their location, as the smoke from the sacrifices could be seen for miles around. Basically, as you were walking down the streets, they had all these statues, and they would have a little dealie with a a lamp, and they'd have incense there. And as you'd go by, you would bow, and you would make some type of incantation. You would light the incense. Christians would get in trouble for when they would walk by there without taking the incense and lighting it, and that's part of the persecution that they suffered in Pergamum. Pagan practices in evil, demonic religions were prominent there. This city was as dark as they come. The city was also the administrative center in all of Asia for the Roman government. Its organizational structure was set up like a diocese. It was the center of worship for all of Asia. This could very well be why Christ used it as a reference to the Satan seat is. He talks about that early on in the scripture. It was the place where men were required on pain of death to take the name of the Lord and give that name to Caesar instead of to Christ. And to a Christian, there could be nothing more satanic than that. It was into this darkness that probably Paul first introduced the gospel of Christ. What exciting days they were back then, man. Paul, God says, Paul, go to Ephesus. Ah, Okay, scoot over this morning. Now I want you to go to Pergamos, and I want you to introduce the gospel. Yes, it is the seat of Satan's power. Yes, it's the darkest city in all the region. Yes, it's also the seat of Roman government. That's where I want you to go with the gospel. I mean, picture today's modern church in modern-day America with similar mandate, and look at how Paul responds And then look at how we respond. I mean, the church is barely recognizable. Okay, so verse 12. And to the angel, or the pastor, of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which has the sharp sword with two edges. We're going to talk about this sword in detail, probably not today. But it is amazing what Jesus is referencing when he talks about the sword. Pergamum, it actually means capital or citadel. Once more, angel means pastor or ministry leader. It refers to the messenger or the leader or the pastor of the church. God is a God of order. When he has a message, he gives it to his pastor to give to the church. Once again, it's so important how Jesus identifies himself when he's introducing himself to these individual churches. Here he reveals himself as he that has the sharp sword with two edges. You're going to learn, I'm going to give you a tease. You're going to learn, that's called the Ramphira sword, R-A-M-P-H. I-R-A or A-I-R-A. It is a wicked sword. Basically, it's a 
pole sword, and it's a long pole with a long, sharp, sickle-type sword on the end of it, which had a blade on both sides, and the Thresians, when they were fighting the Romans, they would use this sword, and they would just sweep it back and forth like you're mowing hay. This sword was mighty. It would cut bone. It would cut flesh, and you would send a troop of these people out front into the battle, and they would decimate the Roman army. The Romans feared this like no other weapon. You're going to see in a little bit that Jesus says when he's coming to the disobedient in the church at Pergamos, it is this type of sword that he will be wielding in his judgment of the church at Pergamos. Verse 13, I know thy works and where you dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. It's amazing how much Jesus just said there. Okay, let's see if we can break it down one thing at a time. First, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Now, this is really different than the normal Christian where thou dwellest. Christians, we are like nomads. We're Roman Jesus. The Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Uh, We are strangers and pilgrims here. We are ambassadors. We don't live here. This earth is not our home. I think nine times the Bible talks about earth dwellers, and it never talks about the church. It always talks about the pagans. It always talks about the lost. The, The church does not live on this earth. We are visiting here. It is not our home. The normal word for a Christian's home, let me get this right, is paroikin, and it means a sojourner or a traveler. However, here, when he's talking to the church at Pergamon, here the word used for dwellers is not paroikin, it's katoikian. And it means to have a permanent place, a secure dwelling. That's not how Christians have been described in other biblical passages. We are strangers. We are pilgrims here. This world is not our home. We are ambassadors for the Lord God. It's a totally different thought here. Here he is saying that, I know that works. I know where you dwell. I know where your home is. I know where you live. This is where you are planted. And generations of people, generations of Jews, before they became Christians, lived in this particular area. And you just didn't travel away from Pergamos. If you were in Pergamos, you stayed there. Generations of families of believers had lived in Pergamum, Jewish believers, for the longest of times. And according to the language that's used, this is where they regularly lived. And Jesus fully understood that because of government restrictions. You didn't leave Pergamus. You were there and you were planted there. That's why he uses this word that means home dweller rather than sojourner. Generations, even where Satan's seed is, he says. So I know that works. I know where you're dwelling, even where Satan's seed is. And that could perhaps be a reference to the fact that this was the darkest city in all the land. I've always thought about the fact that God in his infinite wisdom, you know, he he stuck Satan here on the earth. And it just so happens to be the same place where he planted man. I know that's not a coincidence that we were just sent to the same place where Satan is. But it's a similar uh analogy to what went on at Pergamus. God sent the church to Pergamus, the seat of Satan's power. This is where Satan ruled and reigned for a long time, and then all of a sudden the church pops in here. It's a challenge, a direct challenge from the Lord Jesus Christ using the church to the power of Satan. I liken that in the same way to how God planted strong Christians at Pergamus, in the place where Satan's seat of power is. Once again, we've got to learn this lesson. So important. There is no running from Satan or his power. We must face it. And that is a lesson the church is going to have to learn. William Barclay writes it this way. The principle of the Christian life, it's not escape, but conquest. 
we may feel it would be very much easier to be a Christian in some other places and in some other circumstances, but the duty of the Christian is to witness for Christ where life has set him. There's a scripture somewhere, it might be in Peter, maybe it says, bloom where you've been planted. God expects us. You know, I heard a story once. God got this airplane pilot saved, born again. Hallelujah. For years, he wanted somebody on this airplane route working for this company as a witness. Well, the person got saved and he says, well, praise God. I'm going to leave this dark area and I'm going to go find me and join with other Christians. You bloom where you're planted. You work where God assigned you. And more often than not, it's going to be in difficult places, places of great persecution, places of great darkness. My good friend Cameron just got a job and he was saying the first day on the job, you know, that he was challenged by the second in command about his faith. Wow, maybe I don't belong here. No, that's a sign that you definitely belong there. That's exactly where you belong, to be a light. Satan, the word for Satan, when it says the seed of Satan, the word used is satanish, and it described one who hates, one who accuses, one who slanders, or one who conspires against an adversary. This implies that Satan was aggressively seeking the destruction of the Christian church at Pergamum. He was not just willing to let things run their course. He himself was taking an active role in the demise of the church at Pergamus. When you see all the things that happened there, you'll understand that, wow, this was Satan behind this. The word used here for Satan's seat is thronos, T-H-R-O-N-O-S, and yes, it means throne. In the early Greek, the word was used often to describe someone in any form of authority. You know, back in the early days, the head of a home, the husband, he was called Lord. And he was in charge of the home, and his wife literally called him Lord to show the chain of command there. He was not anybody special, the the husband, the head of the home, outside of the office that he held. Well, he was called Lord befitting his seat of authority. What Jesus is basically saying that in Pergamum, Satan was the master of the house. Satan was literally seated on a real seat, a real throne in Pergamum. And praise God, Jesus was calling on the church there to unseat him. Isn't that exciting? You know, all we've ever been taught for ages is that, oh no, church, Pergamum, compromise. Well, that's true, but also was a church with a great assignment by God, with a great authority, with a great power, with a great witness, and they had some fabulous people at Pergamus. You're going to learn about some of them. Uh, let's try finishing that verse. Let's see. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, and I know that thou holdest fast my name, and you have not denied my faith. Holdest fast. Once again, the Greek word there is kratos. It means to continually hold fast. It means with a powerful grip. Another way to describe what the believers had, they were seizing action. Rather, they had apprehended the name of Jesus, and thou holdest fast my name. They had apprehended the name of Jesus. No one was going to remove that name from their grip. Rick Renner writes it this way. Religious attacks, cultural attacks, social attacks, political attacks, all of these were being levied against the Christians at Pergamum. There were great pressures trying to wrench the name of Jesus from their hands. But those Christians had made a decision. They were determined with firm, resolute resolve that they would hold tightly to the name of Jesus and would not allow anyone to tear it from their grip. Neither did the saints at Pergamum deny the faith of Jesus. Remember, he says, you hold fast my name and you have not denied my faith. It's important to note how it reads. It doesn't say they have not denied the faith. They have not thrown down their faith. It says they have not denied my faith. This is different than your everyday faith. The Greek word for deny is actually 
Oh, let's see if I can say it. Arniomai. 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 That's close. It means to deny, to disown, to reject, to refuse, or renounce. It's commonly referred to a person who had become faithful in a relationship, and subsequently they disavowed that relationship. They forsook. They walked away from. They washed one's hands of their relationship with the other person. The motive for their denial was usually fear of others, fear of suffering ridicule or persecution or anxiety about what others would think. The Church of Pergamus, they did not deny that faith. They did not do that. And Jesus rightly commended them for it. But here it is, the important part. They did not deny my faith. The phrase my faith is key. In the Greek, it's M-O-U, pistis, mo, pistis. Pistis is faith. And when mo is put in front of it, it means my faith. Jesus wasn't congratulating them for their faith or for not throwing their faith down. Remember, cast not away your confidence, your faith, which has great recompense of reward. This faith, it was his faith. It is the totality of the word of God, the whole gospel. It is the Christian creed that they were not denying, the Christian creed that they were holding on to. It is mine, saith the Lord. It is this faith that belongs to me, saith Jesus, that is dear to me, that I hold, that I died for, that I died with. The Greek shows that the faith originated with Christ. It is possessed by Christ. The gospel not only originated with Christ, but it is still firmly in his grip. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He possesses it. We use it for his glory. We are allowed to work it, but at the end of the day, it is his. How dare we alter it? What are we thinking? How dare we change things about it? How dare we say, I'm going to talk about this part. I'm not going to talk about that fight. He died for that faith. Understand that. And yet we, in our wisdom, go ahead and we do things with it. We embellish parts of it. We cover over and hide parts of it. We try to soften some of the hard parts. Man, it's his faith. We have been entrusted with it. That's some high cotton, guys. You got to understand everything about God is holy. And it's his faith. It's his church. It's his gospel. These are his people. You are his people that I'm talking to. I had better get this stuff right. You know, And God bless these commentators and translators that put their headings on these churches in your Bible. Ephesus was the church, they said, that left their first love. And yet they were also the church which set the standard for working for the cause of Christ, even to the point of exhaustion. Smyrna was known as the persecuted church, and persecuted they were. But my understanding of them was that they they were the church of heroic faith. Yeah, they were persecuted, but they were heroes, man. These were true heroes of the faith. You could find their names probably written in Hebrews 11 if they decided to finish off that chapter. Their heroic faith in the face of that persecution. As one writer said, Smyrna is the church where the heroes went. Mm, Think about that in your church. And now here we are at Pergamum or Pergamus, and we know them as the compromising church. And yet, so far in this study, we have seen their defense of Christ. That's all they've done so far that Jesus says, you've kept my word, you've not denied my faith. Once again, he's commending them for what they're doing, what they're doing right. And they're doing this in the darkest city in the world. Their refusal to let go of the name that's above every other name, their absolute unwillingness to deny his faith. Man, if only we could just get an understanding, get a revelation of that. You know, it's a dark time in America. 
once again, my, my friend Brian and I, we were talking about this. Uh, the church and America as a whole is currently under the, the wrath of abandonment. And what that means is God has just taken his hand off of us. He's no longer guiding our every step. He's no longer blessing us for the good things that we're doing. He has said, okay, guys, you don't want me. You have rejected me. That's fine. I'm out of here. I'm gone. So here we are left on our own. We're making wrong decision after wrong decision to supporting and electing regimes that are promoting homosexual lifestyles, that are opening our borders for the destruction of our nation, that are causing financial calamities so that our economy will collapse so that we would then be more uh, willing to get into the one world global economy. Now we're absolutely funding people that are destroying and bent on the destruction of Israel as a people. I mean, that you can't see God anywhere. And that's what he's done. He says, I'm leaving you to your own devices and it's a terrible place to be in. That's where we are. I'm going to use this as a stopping point because it is so important. I don't want to run over. We're going to talk about Antipas next week. And he's just probably the first recorded martyr in the Bible outside of Stephen. But and the Bible doesn't talk a lot about him. But you are going to see that uh, history has a lot of stuff to say about Antipas. Let me pray and close this out. Father God, we love you and we thank you, Father God. Open our eyes and ears that we would behold wonderful things out of thy law. Keep my brothers and sisters, Father God. Keep them safe in the midst of the persecution. Give them a spirit of boldness. Make them heroes to their children, to their families, to their fellow church members, Father God. I pray the wicked one touch them not. Father God, we love you. We pray for them. We trust you with their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net.